Book Fifth, Chapter Seven of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Fifth, Chapter Seven. The idea of the National Gallery had been with her from the moment of her hearing from Sir Luke Strett about his hour of coming. It had been in her mind as a place so meagerly visited, as one of the places that had seemed at home one of the attractions of Europe and one of its highest aids to culture, but that, the old story, the typical frivolous always ended by sacrificing to vulgar pleasures. She had had perfectly, at those whimsical moments at the Brunish, the half-shamed sense of turning her back on such opportunities for real improvement as had figured to her, from of old in connection with the Continental Tour, under the general head of pictures and things, and at last she knew for what she had done so. The plea had been explicit. She had done so for life as opposed to learning the upshot of which had been that life was now beautifully provided for. In spite of those few dips and dashes into the many-coloured stream of history for which of late Kate Croy had helped her to find time, there were possible great chances she had neglected, possible great moments she should save for to-day have all but missed. She might still, she had felt, overtake one or two of them among the Titians and the Turners. She had been honestly nursing the hour, and, once she was in the benignant halls, her faith knew itself justified. It was the air she wanted, and the world she would now exclusively choose. The quiet chambers, nobly overwhelming, rich but slightly veiled, opened out round her, and made her presently say, if I could lose myself here. There were people, people in plenty, but admirably no personal question. It was immense outside the personal question, but she had blissfully left it outside, and the nearest it came, for a quarter of an hour, to glimmering again into view, was when she watched for a little one of the more earnest of the lady copyists. Two or three in particular, spectacled, aproned, absorbed, engaged her sympathy to an absurd extent, seemed to show her for the time the right way to live. She should have been a lady copyist. It met so the case. The case was the case of escape, of living under water, of being at once impersonal and firm. There it was before one, one had only to stick and stick. Milly yielded to this charm till she was almost ashamed. She watched the lady copyists till she found herself wondering what would be thought by others of a young woman of adequate aspect, who should appear to regard them as the pride of the place. She would have liked to talk to them, to get, as it figured to her, into their lives, and was deterred but by the fact that she didn't quite see herself as purchasing imitations, and yet feared she might excite the expectation of purchase. 
She really knew before long that what held her was the mere refuge, that something within her was after all too weak for the Turners and Titians. They joined hands about her in a circle too vast, though a circle that a year before she would only have desired to trace. They were truly for the larger, not for the smaller life, the life of which the actual pitch, for example, was an interest the interest of compassion in misguided efforts. She marked absurdly her little stations, blinking in her shrinkage of curiosity at the glorious walls, yet keeping an eye on vistas and approaches, so that she shouldn't be flagrantly caught. The vistas and approaches drew her in this way from room to room, and she had been through many parts of the show, as she supposed, when she sat down to rest. There were chairs in scant clusters, places from which one could gaze. Milly, indeed, at present fixed her eyes more than elsewhere on the appearance, first that she couldn't quite, after all, have accounted to an examiner for the order of her schools, and then on that of her being more tired than she had meant, in spite of her having been so much less intelligent. They found her eyes, it should be added, other occupation as well, which she let them freely follow. They rested largely, in her vagueness, on the vagueness of other visitors. They attached themselves in especial, with mixed results, to the surprising stream of her compatriots. She was struck with the circumstance that the great museum, early in August, was haunted with these pilgrims, as also with that of her knowing them from afar, marking them easily, each and all, and recognizing not less promptly that they had ever new lights for her, new lights on their own darkness. She gave herself up at last, and it was a consummation like another. What she should have come to the National Gallery for today would be to watch the copyists and reckon the Baedekers. That perhaps was the moral of a menaced state of health, that one would sit in public places and count the Americans. It passed the time in a manner, but it seemed already the second line of defence, and this notwithstanding the pattern so unmistakable of her country folk. They were cut out as by scissors, coloured, labelled, mounted, but the relation to her failed to act. They somehow did nothing for her. Partly, no doubt, they didn't so much as notice or know her, didn't even recognize their community of collapse with her. The sign on her as she sat there that for her, too, Europe was tough. It came to her idly thus, for her humor could still play, that she didn't seem then the same success with them as with the inhabitants of London, who had taken her up on scarce more of an acquaintance. She could wonder if they would be different should she go back with this glamour attached, and she could also wonder, if it came to that, whether she would ever go back. Her friends straggled past, at any rate, in all the vividness of their absent criticism and she had even at last the sense of taking a mean advantage. 
There was a finer instant, however, at which three ladies, clearly a mother and daughter, had paused before her under compulsion of a comment apparently just uttered by one of them, in referring to some object on the other side of the room. Milly had her back to the object, but her face very much to her young compatriot, the one who had spoken and in whose look she perceived a certain gloom of recognition. Recognition, for that matter, sat confessedly in her own eyes. She knew the three, generically, as easily as a schoolboy with a crib in his lap would know the answer in class. She felt like the schoolboy, guilty enough, questioned as honour went, as to her right so to possess, to dispossess people who hadn't consciously provoked her. She would have been able to say where they lived, and also how, had the place and the way been but amenable to the positive. She bent tenderly in imagination of a marital paternal Mr. Whatever he was at home, eternally named, with all the honours and placidities, but eternally unseen and existing only as someone who could be financially heard from. The mother, the puffed and composed whiteness of whose hair had no relation to her apparent age, showed a countenance almost chemically clean and dry. Her companions wore an air of vague resentment, humanized by fatigue, and the three were equally adorned with short cloaks of coloured cloth, surmounted by little tartan hoods. The tartans were doubtless conceivable as different, but the cloaks, curiously only thinkable as one. Handsome? Well, if you choose to say so. It was the mother who had spoken, who herself added after a pause during which Milly took the reference as to a picture. In the English style. The three pair of eyes had converged, and their possessors had for an instance rested, with the effect of a drop of the subject, on this last characterization with that, too, of a gloom not less mute in one of the daughters than murmured in the other. Milly's heart went out to them while they turned their backs. She said to herself that they ought to have known her, that there was something between them they might have beautifully put together. But she had lost them also. They were cold. They left her in her weak wonder as to what they had been looking at. The handsome disposed her to turn, all the more that the English style would be the English school, which she liked, only she saw before moving, by the array on the side facing her, that she was in fact among small Dutch pictures. The action of this was again appreciable, the dim surmise that it wouldn't then be by a picture that the spring in the three ladies had been pressed. It was at all events time she should go, and she turned as she got on her feet. She had had behind her one of the entrances and various visitors who had come in while she sat, visitors single and in pairs, by one of the former of whom she felt her eyes suddenly held. This was a gentleman in the middle of the place, a gentleman who had removed his hat and was for a moment while he glanced absently, as she could see, at the top tier of the collection, tapping his forehead with his pocket-handkerchief. 
The occupation held him long enough to give Milly time to take for granted, and a few seconds sufficed, that his face was the object just observed by her friends. This could only have been because she concurred in their tribute, even qualified, and indeed the English style of the gentleman, perhaps by instant contrast to the American, was what had had the arresting power. This arresting power at the same time, and that was the marvel, had already sharpened almost to pain, for in the very act of judging the bared head with detachment she felt herself shaken by a knowledge of it. It was Merton Densher's own, and he was standing there, standing long enough unconscious for her to fix him and then hesitate. These successions were swift, so that she could still ask herself in freedom if she had best let him see her. She could still reply to this that she shouldn't like him to catch her in the effort to prevent it. And she might further have decided that he was too preoccupied to see anything had not a perception intervened that surpassed the first in violence. She was unable to think afterwards how long she had looked at him before knowing herself as otherwise looked at. All she was coherently to put together was that she had had a second recognition without his having noticed her. The source of this latter shock was nobody less than Kate Croy. Kate Croy, who was suddenly also in the line of vision, and whose eyes met her eyes at their next movement. Kate was but two yards off. Mr. Densher wasn't alone. Kate's face specifically said so, for after a stare as blank at first as Milly's, it broke into a far smile. That was what, wonderfully, in addition to the marvel of their meeting, passed from her for Milly, the instant reduction to easy terms of the fact of their being there. The two young women together... It was perhaps only afterwards that the girl fully felt the connection between this touch and her already established conviction that Kate was a prodigious person. Yet on the spot she nonetheless, in a degree, knew herself handled and again, as she had been the night before, dealt with, absolutely even dealt with for her greater pleasure. A minute in fine hadn't elapsed, before Kate had somehow made her provisionally take everything as natural. The provisional was just the charm, acquiring that character from one moment to the other. It represented happily so much that Kate would explain on the very first chance. This left, moreover, and that was the greatest wonder, all due margin for amusement at the way things happened the monstrous oddity of their turning up in such a place on the very heels of their having separated without allusion to it. The handsome girl was thus literally in control of the scene by the time Merton Densher was ready to exclaim with a high flush or a vivid blush. One didn't distinguish the embarrassment from the joy. Why, Miss Thiel, fancy! And... Why, Miss Thiel, what luck! Miss Thiel had meanwhile the sense that for him too, on Kate's part, something wonderful and unspoken was determinant. 
and this although distinctly his companion had no more looked at him with a hint than he had looked at her with a question. He had looked and was looking only at Milly herself, ever so pleasantly and considerately, she scarce knew what to call it, but without prejudice to her consciousness, all the same, that women got out of predicaments better than men. The predicament, of course, wasn't definite nor phraseable, and the way they let all phrasing pass was presently to recur to our young woman as a characteristic triumph of the civilized state. But she took it for granted, insistently, with a small private flare of passion, because the one thing she could think of to do for him was to show him how she eased him off. She would really, tired and nervous, have been much disconcerted if the opportunity in question hadn't saved her. It was what had saved her most, what had made her, after the first few seconds, almost as brave for Kate as Kate was for her, had made her only ask herself what their friend would like of her. That he was at the end of three minutes, without the least complicated reference, so smoothly their friend was just the effect of their all being sublimely civilized the flash in which he saw this was for milly fairly inspiring to that degree in fact that she was even now on such a plane yearning to be supreme it took no doubt a big dose of inspiration to treat as not funny or at least as not unpleasant the anomaly for kate that she knew their gentleman, and for herself that Kate was spending the morning with him. But everything continued to make for this after Milly had tasted of her draught. She was to wonder in subsequent reflection what in the world they had actually said, since they had made such a success of what they didn't say. The sweetness of the draught for the time, at any rate, was to feel success assured. What depended on this for Mr. Densher was all obscurity to her, and she perhaps but invented the image of his need as a shortcut to accommodation. Whatever the facts, their perfect manners all round saw them through. The finest part of Milly's own inspiration, it may further be mentioned, was the quick perception that what would be of most service was, so to speak, her own native wood-note. She had long been conscious with shame for her thin blood, or at least for her poor economy, of her unused margin as an American girl, closely indeed as in English air the next might appear to cover the page. She still had reserves of spontaneity, if not of comicality, so that all this cash in hand could now find employment. She became as spontaneous as possible as an American as it might conveniently appeal to Mr. Densher, after his travels, to find her. She said things in the air, and yet flattered herself that she struck him as saying them not in the tone of agitation, but in the tone of New York. In the tone of New York agitation was beautifully discounted and she had now a sufficient view of how much it might accordingly help her. The help was fairly rendered before they left the place, 
when her friends presently accepted her invitation to adjourn with her to luncheon at her hotel it was in fifth avenue that the meal might have waited kate had never been there so straight but milly was at present taking her and if mr densher had been he had at least never had to come so fast she proposed it as the natural thing proposed it as the american girl and she saw herself quickly justified by the pace at which she was followed the beauty of the case was that to do it all she had only to appear to take kate's hint this had said in its fine first smile oh yes our looks queer but give me time and the american girl could give time as nobody else could what milly thus gave she therefore made them take even if as they might surmise it was rather more than they wanted in the porch of the museum she expressed her preference for a four-wheeler they would take their course in that guise precisely to multiply the minutes she was more than ever justified by the positive charm that her spirit imparted even to their use of this conveyance and she touched her highest point that is certainly for herself as she ushered her companions into the presence of susie susie was there with luncheon as well as with her return in prospect and nothing could now have filled her own consciousness more to the brim than to see this good friend take in how little she was abjectly anxious the cup itself actually offered to this good friend might in truth well be startling for it was composed beyond question of ingredients oddly mixed she caught susie fairly looking at her as if to know whether she had brought in guests to hear sir luke strett's report well it was better her companion should have too much than too little to wonder about she had come out anyway as they said at home for the interest of the thing and interest truly sat in her eyes milly was none the less at the sharpest crisis a little sorry for her she could of necessity extract from the odd scenes so comparatively little of a soothing secret she saw mr densher suddenly popping up but she saw nothing else that had happened she saw in the same way her young friend indifferent to her young friend's doom and she lacked what would explain it the only thing to keep her in patience was the way after luncheon kate almost as might be said made up to her this was actually perhaps as well what most kept milly herself in patience it had in fact for our young woman a positive beauty was so marked as a deviation from the handsome girl's previous courses susie had been a bore to the handsome girl and the change was now suggestive the two sat together after they had risen from table in the apartment in which they had lunched making it thus easy for the other guest and his entertainer to sit in the room adjacent this for the latter personage was the beauty it was almost on kate's part like a prayer to be relieved if she honestly liked better to be thrown with susan shepherd than with her other friend why that said practically everything it didn't perhaps altogether say why she had gone out with him for the morning but it said as one thought 
about as much as she could say to his face. Little by little, indeed, under the vividness of Kate's behaviour, the probabilities fell back into their order. Merton Densher was in love, and Kate couldn't help it, could only be sorry and kind. Wouldn't that, without wild flurries, cover everything? Milly at all events tried it as a cover, tried it hard for the time, pulled it over her in front, the larger room, drew it up to her chin with energy. If it didn't, so treated, do everything for her, it did so much that she could herself supply the rest. She made that up by the interest of her great question, the question of whether seeing him once more with all that, as she called it to herself, had come and gone, her impression of him would be different from the impression received in New York. That had held her from the moment of their leaving the museum. It kept her company through their drive and during luncheon. And now that she was a quarter of an hour alone with him, it became acute. She was to feel at this crisis that no clear, no common answer, no direct satisfaction on this point was to reach her. She was to see her question itself simply go to pieces. She couldn't tell if he were different or not and she didn't know nor care if she were. These things had ceased to matter in the light of the only thing she did know. This was that she liked him, as she put it to herself, as much as ever. And if that were to amount to liking a new person, the amusement would be but the greater. She had thought him at first very quiet, in spite of his recovery from his original confusion though even the shade of bewilderment she yet perceived had not been due to such vagueness on the subject of her re-intensified identity as the probable sight over there of many thousands of her kind would sufficiently have justified no he was quiet inevitably for the first half of the time because milly's own lively line the line of spontaneity made everything else relative and because, too, so far as Kate was spontaneous, it was ever so finely in the air among them that the normal pitch must be kept. Afterwards, when they had got a little more used, as it were, to each other's separate felicity, he had begun to talk more clearly, bethinking himself at a given moment of what his natural lively line would be. It would be able to take for granted she must wish to hear of the States, and to give her in its order everything he had seen and done there. He abounded of a sudden, he almost insisted. He returned after breaks to the charge, and the effect was perhaps the more odd, as he gave no clue whatever to what he had admired, as he went or to what he hadn't. He simply drenched her with his sociable story, especially during the time they were away from the others. She had stopped then being American, all to let him be English, a permission of which he took she could feel both immense and unconscious advantage. She had really never cared less for the States than at this moment, but that had nothing to do with the matter. It would have been the occasion of her life to learn about them, for nothing could put him off, 
and he ventured on no reference to what had happened for herself. It might have been almost as if he had known that the greatest of all these adventures was her doing just what she did then. It was at this point that she saw the smash of her great question complete, saw that all she had to do with was the sense of being there with him. And there was no chill for this in what she also presently saw, that however he had begun, he was now acting from a particular desire, determined either by new facts or new fancies, to be like everyone else, simplifyingly kind to her. He had caught on already as to manner, fallen into line with everyone else, and if his spirits verily had gone up, it might well be that he had thus felt himself lighting on the remedy for all awkwardness. Whatever he did or he didn't, Milly knew she should still like him. There was no alternative to that, but her heart could nonetheless sink a little on feeling how much this view of her was destined to have in common with, as she now sighed over it, the view. She could have dreamt of his not having the view, of his having something or other, if need be quite viewless, of his own, but he might have what he could with least trouble, and the view wouldn't be after all a positive bar to her seeing him. The defect of it in general, if she might so ungraciously criticise, was that, by its sweet universality, it made relations rather prosaically a matter of course. It anticipated and superseded the likewise sweet operation of real affinities. It was this that was doubtless marked in her power to keep him now, this and her glassy lustre of attention to his pleasantness about the scenery in the Rockies. She was in truth a little measuring her success in detaining him by Kate's success in standing Susan. It wouldn't be, if she could help it, Mr. Densher who should first break down. Such at least was one of the forms of the girl's inward tension. But beneath even this deep reason was a motive still finer. What she had left at home on going out to give it a chance was meanwhile still, was more sharply and actively there. What had been at the top of her mind about it and then violently pushed down, this quantity was again working up. As soon as their friends should go, Susie would break out, and what she would break out upon wouldn't be interested in that gentleman as she had more than once shown herself the personal fact of Mr. Densher. Milly had found in her face at luncheon a feverish glitter, and it told what she was full of. She didn't care now for Mr. Densher's personal facts. Mr. Densher had risen before her only to find his proper place in her imagination already of a sudden occupied. His personal fact failed, so far as she was concerned, to be personal, and her companion noticed the failure. This could only mean that she was full to the brim of Sir Luke's threat, and of what she had had from him. What had she had from him? It was indeed now working upward again that Milly would do well to know, though knowledge looked stiff in the light of Susie's glitter. 
It was therefore on the whole because Densher's young hostess was divided from it by so thin a partition that she continued to cling to the Rockies. End of Book Fifth Chapter Seven And End of Volume One of The Wings of the Dove Read by Lars Rolander